The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. That's what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel? Uh, we're back in the book of Daniel and uh, uh, grateful for the wonderful memories that uh, uh, many of you I know have of uh, early days of uh, Baltimore uh, Bible Church and uh, grateful for those of us who are uh, still here to carry those memories on. So uh, very grateful uh, for that and looking forward to next week as our... Uh, our church celebrates 10 years of God's faithfulness, and I uh, just wonder what a wonderful gift uh, that is uh, to us. So if you would, open up to the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9 uh, today as we uh, cover our final message in what many consider to be one of the most difficult and challenging passages of the Old Testament. And that may be true, but I also hope to show you at the same time that this is one of the most encouraging and faith-building passages of the Old Testament. And it really is. And the, the more I've spent time in, in Daniel is actually the more encouraged I've been uh, by this chapter. This is a phenomenal and exciting chapter, contains so much truth. And contrary to what many people say about this passage, Daniel did not walk away confused by what he heard. This was a, a prophecy that was given to Daniel in order that he might understand in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 22, Daniel mentions that the angel Gabriel visited him, and he says this in verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Daniel was meant to understand this prophecy. Uh, Jesus over in Matthew chapter 24 uh, referred to the same prophecy, and listen to what he says in Matthew 24 and verse 15. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus expected those who read the prophecy of Daniel to be able to gain understanding from it. And while we might be required to do some study to show ourselves approved, it's a prophecy that we too can understand. The words of Scripture are given to reveal truth, not to conceal truth. And the truth that it reveals is eminently practical. It's practical truth. Useful truth. This isn't uh, trivial information that may be interesting to study but makes no difference in your life. This is practical truth. How is it practical? Does, does knowing that God controls every event in human history have any practical benefit to your life? Of course it does. When, when Daniel is told that 70 weeks or 77s have been decreed for your people, this holy city, it's a reminder that somebody is in control of time. All the events that happen within this life are orchestrated by a divine God, a sovereign God. God's not waiting for history to unfold and then make adjustments along the way. He's not responding to history. He's initiating history. Author and theologian Bruce Ware imagines what it would be like if God were not in absolute control. He writes this. He says, what if, in fact, God does not know what tomorrow will bring? 
What if it turns out that God may be just as alarmed and taken aback by what happens as we are? What if, in fact, God looks back with regret at many of his own decisions and thinks, if I had only known, (laughs) can such a God really be trusted? Can we really have confidence in his direction for our lives? If God does not know the future, then who does? If God's not in control, then who is? We have a God who not only knows the future, but he decrees the future. And we're reminded here that God has ordained and decreed the events of these 70 weeks for Israel. And that gives us confidence that God is in absolute control over our lives as well. This is a God that you can trust, a God who knows the future. That's practical truth. Knowing our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God. That makes practical, that's a practical truth that we can apply to our lives. Number two, another way that this is practical in Daniel 9, it reminds us that God is still saving those who have stubbornly rejected his word and his Messiah. For centuries, the Jewish people rejected the Lord and his Messiah. God can even turn an entire nation around to himself if he so desires, and that's encouraging, isn't it? What we find in Daniel is that Israel's sin and rebellion against the Lord will not prove to be a permanent barrier against his grace towards them. In uh, verse 24, it says that he will finish their transgression, make an end to their sin, and that's a truth that we can be encouraged by. I mean, how long have you been praying for a loved one or a family member who's stubbornly rejecting the truth? Does it give you hope to know that the guy can turn even a nation around to himself if he so chooses? That those who've rejected the truth even for centuries can still be turned around? And God can do the same work of conversion in the hearts of those that you love? Don't believe for a moment that God is unable to break through a stony, hard-hearted rebellion against him. God can turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and he'll prove to do so with the nation of of Israel. That's practical. That's something that we can look to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you in this. I'm going to continue to pray. Even though I'm not seeing the change, I'm not seeing, you know, my my prayers being answered in the way that I would like to see them answered. God, I know that you're a God who can still work in the hearts of those that have rejected you. You can turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. You can bring that person to yourself. That's the work of the Lord. Is it practical to see how prophecy has been fulfilled in history? Of course it is. And so often what's buried beneath the details of this text as we think about the future are the details about the past. There's so much that God has already fulfilled. I mean, think about this with me. In uh, verse 25, it speaks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that was prophesied during a day when Jerusalem was a, a heap of rubble, just a pile of rocks. And this Prophecy was given that that city will be rebuilt with plaza and moat even during a time of distress. And it happened just like Daniel said it would happen. Verses 25 and 26, it was predicted that the Messiah, the prince, would arrive in Jerusalem after 62 uh, prophetic weeks, that he would be cut off, which means to suffer a violent death and have nothing, which all happened exactly like Daniel said it would happen. The prince arrived in Jerusalem and they crucified him, just like the scripture said would happen. It all happened just like Daniel said. And does that increase your confidence in the scriptures? That what God says will happen, will happen? In fact, Jesus is the only person, listen to this. This is fascinating. Jesus is the only person who could have fulfilled the prophecies in Daniel. The only person. Why? You need to mark this one down. Because in verse 26, it says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What does that mean? 
That means that the Messiah had to come before the city was destroyed. You get that? The Messiah had to come before the city was destroyed, and we know that the city was destroyed in A.D. 70. What does that mean? That the Messiah had to come before A.D. 70. And who's the only person who would have been able to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah? It's Jesus Christ. Does that give you confidence that your Bible is the Word of God? That that, that, the Scriptures are, are so complete, so compelling. The Messiah had to come before A.D. 70, and this is one of the most powerful arguments that we have that the Messiah has already come. The Messiah came, he died before the sanctuary and before the city were destroyed. That's already happened. And what we see here is uh, another evidence of the, the clarity, the, the, um, uh, the truthfulness of the scriptures. The Messiah came and died just like the scripture said that he would. All of this is incredible truth that we find in the book of, of Daniel. And we skip over this because often we want to get to the practical sections of scripture. This, this is the practical section of Scripture. We're given security in God's sovereignty. We're encouraged to pray with hope because of God's mercy. We're given a defense of God's word through prophecy. This is all immensely practical truth. And by God's grace, these verses of, of Daniel will remind us that it doesn't matter how dark the night becomes, there's going to be a sunrise in the morning. There's going to be a sunrise in the morning. Daniel 9 speaks about dark days for Israel. Dark days are still ahead, even for our world. Uh, But the persistence of the distress of this life, the destruction, the desolation, will not prevent the light of God's promises from breaking through the darkness. Because after these days, God has promised, verse 24, that he will make an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. So we can have hope in God, that even though the days get dark, and darker all the time. We're living in dark days. Can't, can we all admit that? Can we say amen to that? We're living in dark days. But even as dark as the days are that we live in, there's still light to come. And that's what we can trust, and we can trust in the Lord who controls history. Daniel chapter 9, let's start at verse 24, uh, just for the sake of context. Uh, but we'll be focusing on the last couple of verses here. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you today, and Father, as we approach this text, Father, we pray that you'd grant us understanding of the things that we read. Now, even as Daniel was granted understanding of the things that he was to receive from this vision, Father, I pray that you would grant us understanding as well. Father, that you would help us to be like the noble Bereans, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And Father, that uh, you would um, uh, uh, use me, Lord, as a, a weak instrument 
uh, to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start with a little bit of review. Uh, the last time we were here in Daniel, we observed that the word for decree in verse 24 is speaking about a slice of time that's cut out of human history for God to fulfill all of his promises to national Israel. And uh, Daniel's vision gives a specific, a specific measure of time for that uh, fulfillment, and he gives it to us in 70 weeks. 70 weeks. And we saw the last time we were here that the word for weeks in verse 24 is literally the word for sevens, the Hebrew word shabuah or shabuim. It's the, uh, in the plural. It speaks about a, a group of sevens. And in the context here, we're talking about 70 groups of seven years, which equals 490 years. And God would fulfill all of his plans for Israel in 70 sevens or 490 years. And that's the summary of his plan for them. That's found in verse 24, 70 sevens or 490 years. And that time frame would be broken up into three segments. There was a, a seven-year segment, seven sevens or uh, 49 years to rebuild the city. Uh, uh, verse 26 says there will be a segment of 62 sevens, which would be 434 years that leads up to the Messiah. And then in verse 27, it lets, lets us know that there's going to be a segment of one seven, seven years, when a covenant will be made and then broken in the middle of the week. So first of all, uh, we have the summary of the plan for Israel in verse 24. And then in verse 25, we have the restoration of the city, that it will be built again with plaza and moat. And the, the decree to rebuild uh, the city walls, not just the temple, but the city of Jerusalem is actually one of the, the best-known dates in ancient history. Uh, it was the 20th year of uh, King Artaxerxes. It was the year 445 B.C., and that's when the 77s began. Uh, the city was restored in 49 years, that first seven sevens of time, and uh, that's how long it took them to uh, remove all the rubble, construct the houses, you know, uh, construct everything that was inside uh, the city. It took them 49 years to do that. Uh, and that's spoken of here in, in Daniel. Uh, the next segment of time, uh, 62 weeks. That's uh, 483 years if you add the seven to that. It's found in verse uh, 25. And then the NASB, it reads, So are, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which adds up to the 69 weeks. 69 sevens would be 483 and as I mentioned last time, if you're reading a, an ESV, it includes punctuation that doesn't show up in the original text. And it's best to read verse 25, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And that takes us from the decree all the way to the time of the Messiah. Actually, to the time that he entered into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. And this is found in uh, verse 25, the coming of the anointed one or the prince and specifically as he uh, related to Jerusalem. This is the time that he entered uh, Jerusalem, publicly made himself known as he entered into uh, Jerusalem. And it happened just as the Scripture said that it would. That's the revelation of the Messiah. And uh, you can review the last message in Daniel if you want to work through the timing of all that. We're not going to try to go over all that again today. Uh, but the timing of God is impeccable. No flaws in it. Jesus came to Jerusalem just like he was predicted to come. Uh, the revelation of the Messiah in Jerusalem was predicted not only here, but also in uh, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And even though the scriptures predicted that this would come, the people in Jerusalem missed it. They, they, they missed the prophecy regarding these things. They missed the, the timing of these things. And for all practical purposes, the prophetic clock stopped for national Israel. It's like the hands of time were prevented from moving forward, and the kingdom was, that was operating under Israel was ripped away from them. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And Jesus pronounced a departure of the presence of God from the Jewish temple. Basically, Jesus is saying, it's over for you right now. It's over for you. I'm taking away the kingdom from you and going to give it to a, a people producing the fruit. And this house, this temple is going to be left to you desolate. It's empty. It's empty of the most important thing, the presence of God. And just like Romans chapter 11 and verse 8 says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. By their transgressions, Scripture says salvation has come to the Gentiles, and one day Israel will return, but today there's a partial hardening that's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's what's going on right now. The fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. And all of that leads us up to the rejection of the Messiah that we find in verse 26. Take a look at verse 26. It says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Have nothing. And that's exactly how his crucifixion would have been viewed. Jesus died with nothing. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And when Jesus died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb because he didn't have his own. He didn't die with the, the world's goods. Even the, the cloak that he wore was stripped off of him. And the soldiers gambled for it. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 lets us know that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ gave up everything. And when he died, he died with nothing. And he was cut off. The Hebrew word for cut off is used in Isaiah 53 and verse 8 for a violent death. By oppression and judgment, Isaiah 53, 8 says, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. To be cut off referred to a violent death, always referred to an unnatural, violent death. And that's what Jesus experienced. And he experienced that kind of death not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of those that would believe on him, right? And the people of Jerusalem cried out, we will have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. This is how low Israel would go. And because of Israel's rejection, of their Messiah, they would lose their sanctuary, they would lose their city, they would lose their kingdom, and it only gets worse before it gets better. Let's take a look at verse 26 again in chapter 9. It says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that literally happened in AD 70. But the question is, who is the prince and who are his people? That's the question. 
And we can answer the, the question about the people pretty easily because it's a clear reference to the Roman armies that came in and destroyed the city. We, we know who destroyed the city in A.D. 70. That's not, that's not a question. We know who destroyed the city. In 70 A.D., the Roman army led by Titus Vespasian destroyed the city and the temple. The temple was burned. The Roman army pushed the stones off the temple mount to break them into pieces to retrieve the gold that was on them. Not one stone was left upon another, and you can still see the remains today. Those are the people, the, the Roman army, but the question is, who is the prince who is to come? That's the question. Because this isn't speaking about Jesus, and this isn't as simple as saying that the Roman emperor would be the prince. Because Titus, the Roman emperor, Titus Vespasian, does not fit all the details of this prophecy. Titus does not make war until the end. That's what verse 26 says. Even to the end, there will be war. At no time did Titus make a firm covenant with the Jewish people and break that covenant in the middle of the week. He did not do that. And what Daniel promises here is that there will be a complete destruction of the one that is decreed will be poured out on the one who makes desolate. So there is going to be this divine deliverance and a judgment of this prince who is to come. And many passages of Scripture verify this. And this lets us know that this is not an event of the past. This is an event of the future. This prince who is to come is somebody who's coming in the future. 70 AD happened in the past. The city was destroyed. The sanctuary was destroyed. But the prince who is to come is a person who will come in the future. And if you've been following us through the book of, of Daniel, you'll already know who this is. Because there is someone who will come to rule over a revived Roman empire. And he's already been described in Daniel's previous prophecies. This is one who will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, one week, seven years. That's when the prophetic clock will start to tick again. That's when it starts to, to move. The hands of time will start to move for Israel. And we find out about this person in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to flip back to Daniel chapter 7, take a look at this with me. Daniel chapter 7. Take a look at verse 7 here. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 7. Here Daniel says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And uh, if you remember when we covered that before, that's speaking about the, the Roman Empire. You know, it followed after Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And you remember that out of this fourth beast, this Roman Empire, came a small horn or a ruler who uttered great boasts. Look at verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. This, this horn is a representation of rule or authority. And the Bible clearly speaks about a ruler who is to come, who's associated with the Roman Empire, who will speak out against the Most High, who will wear down the saints of God, and we know of him as none other than the Antichrist. This future ruler to come. Look down at verse 25 in chapter 7. Look at what he will do. It says, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand, listen to this, for time, times, and half a time. What's time? 
time is speaking about a, a yearly cycle. That's, that's one cycle would be a time. Times would be in the plural, speaking about two. So time one times two and half a time, which is a half. So one plus two plus a half is three and a half. How long does the Roman ruler keep his covenant to the nation of Israel? He, he promises them a week and he only keeps it for three and a half years, half of the week, the middle of the week. He breaks the covenant at the three and a half mark, speaking about the same person. Flip over to the book of Revelation. And it's just, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's like, it's scary how much these details match up with one another. But the book of Revelation, look at chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13. Starting at verse 1, Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 1. It says, And the dragon, this is another name for Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having, listen to this, ten horns, similar to what we read in Daniel, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, speaking about ten kings or kingdoms. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Remember, this is the one who speaks out against the Most High, right? And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And if you remember the prophecy that was given back in uh, Daniel chapter 7, I mean, you have the same animals that are mentioned here, kind of all combined in this last beast. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his authority and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So he's able to perform these great signs. And uh, just as a, a footnote, you can jot down 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, uh, because in that passage it says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. This one who is to come will be able to work wonders. And they worship the dragon, verse 4. Because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who was able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. 42 months. How long is 42 months? 12 plus 12 plus 12, that's three years. And then you add six to that and you get to 42. We're talking about three and a half years. That, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Same frame of time. And he opened his mouth, verse 6 says, in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme in his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints. Again, wearing out the saints, as spoken of here again, to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. I mean, you, you can't make this up. This is like hand in the glove. You know, half of seven, three and a half years, 42 months. And if you want to get even more specific, 42 months equals 1,260 days. And that's the specific, the specific amount of time that the book of Revelation says the nations would tread underfoot the holy city. Flip over to Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11, look at verses uh, 2 and 3. Here it says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will, listen to this, tread underfoot the holy city 
for 42 months, 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth, which was a symbol of mourning. 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, half a seven, it's all saying the same thing. I mean, what, what other way can you say it, right? What, what other possible way could you say it? There's coming a future ruler who's associated with the Roman Empire, who will possess great leadership abilities. And he's going to seem to have all the answers for all the complex problems of the world. He's going to be a a political genius. He's able to offer military protection. He makes promises of peace for Israel. He makes this covenant for seven years. And that's when the clock starts to tick. This covenant that's made, the clock starts to tick. And when he makes this covenant, Israel will receive it. Reminds us of what John chapter 5, verse 43 says. Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the true king, but they'll receive somebody else. Somebody else will come, and they'll receive him. They'll listen to him. Hey, he's promising us you know, protection of the military might. We can, we can listen to him. We'll, we'll accept his covenant and rejected the covenant that Jesus Christ came to offer, rejected him as king, didn't want to recognize him when he came in humble and mounted on the, 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 the colt of a donkey, didn't want to recognize him, but we'll recognize the military leader. You know, it's just so much of what we have today. Everybody looks at what's on the outside. Israel will receive the Antichrist as their solution. And there are problems they think are going to be erased. You know, all the crisis in the Middle East And in the middle of this covenant, he's going to turn on them and unleash the greatest devastation that this world has ever known. And it will begin with what Daniel describes with the words, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And in many ways, a preview of this madman to come, this antichrist, has already been seen in uh, the ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, who's referred to in Daniel chapter 8 as another little horn. And in uh, Emil Schur's classic series, The Jewish People in the Time of Jesus, he traces the history of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the, the fourth became king in 175 B.C. over one of the branches of the Greek empire. He was really a usurper of the throne. Since the son of his brother was young and a hostage in Rome when his father died, Antiochus seized the throne for himself, even though it belonged to his brother, rightfully. After taking the the throne, he determined that he was going to advance the superiority of Greek culture in the world. And uh, Antiochus believed himself to be the savior of the Jewish people to improve the condition of this most detestable race, it was said. He started bringing all things Greek into Jerusalem, but Antiochus wasn't content to watch Jerusalem slowly grow into, you know, uh, Hellenization or, you know, accepting Greek culture. He wanted to speed up the process. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 11, it says that he even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. In chapter 8, verse 25, it says he will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. And Antiochus magnified himself to the place of, of God, and we know that from history, In 168 B.C., he declared war on the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He declared it a Greek city. One ancient history reports that he was raging like a wild animal. He took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met, 
to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 souls were lost. 40,000 met a violent death, and the same number were sold into slavery. And throughout the whole land of Jerusalem, the Jewish religion was being rooted out. The worship of Greek gods was introduced. And in the towns of Judah, they built pagan altars and at the doors of their houses and in the squares, they offered illicit sacrifices. If anybody had a copy of the, the Torah, the law of God, or a child that was circumcised, he would be put to death. The women had their, who had their sons circumcised and their, had their sons put to death and then their dead bodies hung around their necks. They executed their husbands and the men who performed circumcisions. And in December of 168 B.C., the great altar of burnt offering in Jerusalem was used to offer up the sacrifice of a, of a, for the first time of a pig. And then they took the meat of the pig and stuffed it down the throats of the priests. And it was called the abomination of desolation. Sacrifice to the Olympic god Zeus or Jupiter, dedicated the temple of God to Jupiter, and participated in a festival and marched in procession. And in a similar way, there's coming another figure, similar to Antiochus Epiphanes, who will one day demand worship for himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, why don't you flip over there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's take a look at verse 3. It says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, and here it is uh, speaking about the, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this is another name for the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, which means that the temple has to be erected again. He's going to come into the temple, proclaim himself to be God. This has not happened yet, okay? This is talking about a time in the future. And during this time, there's going to be a massive slaughter on the earth that will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. This will be a time beyond Antiochus. It's going to be a time beyond 70 AD. It's going to be a time beyond uh, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust. It's going to be a satanically empowered dominion over the entire world. And no, I do not believe that the church will be present for it. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, but this will be a time of tribulation such as the world has never experienced before. Plagues from heaven, persecution from hell. There'll be nothing that you could compare this time with. But there's going to be a remnant of Israel that will miraculously be rescued from it. Look back at uh, Daniel chapter 12. I'll just, just point out a couple of these passages, and there's, there's a lot more we could turn to. But look at Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. There's, there's, there's this promised protection for, for Israel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. So uh, here we're speaking about uh, angelic protection that will be offered to Israel. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. The remnant are going to be rescued. 
Flip back to uh, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, look at verses 7 to 9. Again, speaking about this time like which there's not going to be another time like it. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. It says, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. There's going to come the Davidic king who will be raised during this day. And if we turn over to the book of Matthew to learn about the same time, again, it's, it's, it's repeating the same thing over and over again. There's going to come a time like which there's never going to be another time like it. Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 21. Matthew 24, verse 21. It says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's a unique time. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And what happens to cut those days short? What happens right after this great tribulation? Drop down to verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. This is something that's going to happen in the future. How are those days cut short? The Son of Man appears. How do we know that the great tribulation has not happened yet? Because the Son of, the Man, the Son of Man has not yet appeared. Because immediately after those days, the Son of Man is going to be the one who cuts those days short. He's going to come and rescue. The Son of Man is going to appear. And this is where we move and uh, back in Daniel chapter 9 again, we move uh, from uh, this great destruction and desecration of the, the temple uh, to the deliverance of the saints. Back in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So this is uh, the work of the Antichrist. You know, the one who uh, performs this abomination of desolation, the abominations which makes desolate. You know, it's an abomination that empties the place. Even until, so, so there's, a, there's a stopping point, until a complete destruction. He's going to do this until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's going to come a destruction that's poured out on the one who makes desolate. What does that mean? It means the, the one who defiles and makes desolate and destroys will himself be destroyed. There's going to, going to come a destruction on the one who makes desolate. And the Bible describes the defeat, the defeat of the Antichrist, the beast, with nothing more than a simple word from Christ. <laughs> I, I love this. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Nothing more than a word. Like, just breathe on him. And he's destroyed. Nothing more than a word. Bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When he appears, 
That's what puts the end to it, puts the stop to it. He appears, merely breathes on him, and he's annihilated. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. He will be annihilated with the breath of the mouth of the Lord. As Martin Luther wrote, one little word shall fell him, and destruction will be poured out on him. And the question you may be asking yourself is, why would the Lord decree all of this? <laughs> I mean, 70 weeks of this kind of stuff? I mean, like, why would the Lord decree all of this? What's the, what's the purpose for all of this destruction and wars and desolations until the end? And why allow the Antichrist to come into power in the first place? I mean, if it's the Most High who rules over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes, why would he bestow it on him? Why would he give Antichrist the, the steering wheel of the, the world, right? Why, why give it to him? And it's not mentioned here in Daniel. But what's the reason for all the plagues that we find in the book of Revelation? Like I said, there's going to be plagues from heaven and devastation from hell. Why allow all this stuff to happen on the world? Why does the Lord decree this kind of history for Israel? Here's the reason. Because God will fulfill his covenant with them. God will fulfill his covenant with them. And it will be through these devastations that Israel is finally brought to Jesus Christ. Israel will be, national Israel will be eventually brought to Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It's these tribulations that shake them out of their, their confidence in themselves that they have to start looking up to Jesus Christ. Flip over to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12. Don't you guys like flipping around the Bible? I know I do. If you've turned to Matthew and just flip back a couple books, you'll get to, to Zechariah, all right? Zechariah chapter 12. This is fascinating. And it, it just all, everything just connects together. It's like, you know, like a puzzle, like Legos. You know, everything just snaps in place. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verse 8. Zechariah 12, verse 8. It says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I know some of you are still trying to find it. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day. This is the remnant. Remember, there's that remnant. The one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Finally, Israel will look up to the one that they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. Remember in Matthew 24, it talks about the, the tribe's mourning. They will mourn for who? For him. As one mourns for an only son, they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the, the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, the remnant that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. They will all mourn for the Son of God. How could we have missed it? They mourn over him. Matthew 23, 39 says, Jesus told the, the religious leaders, from now on you will no longer see me until, until. 
ye say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's coming a time when national Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How have we missed it? And they will mourn over the Son of God. They will mourn for their Messiah. Romans eleven twenty six says, so all Israel, and all Israel speaks about that remnant in that day, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant. Remember I said he's going to fulfill his covenant? He says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. They will mourn over their rejection of the Messiah, and the Messiah will finally take away their sins. Sins will be removed from them. Ungodliness will be removed from Jacob. And God has promised a future for Israel, and that promised future includes the removal of the sins of their rejection, and the Lord shakes them free from their rebellion by putting them through that future great tribulation. Cliff McManus in his book, What Does the Bible Say About Israel? He writes, the future tribulation is designed to chasten Israel and to bring her to repentance. The seven-year chastening period, this great tribulation, is, intended for the, is not intended for the body of Christ, but for recalcitrant Israel. And as Romans 11 verse 12 says, now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is for the riches of the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And we look forward to the day when not only we, but all those who the Lord is going to draw to himself will finally come. And there's a glorious program of the kingdom of God that he's prepared for the nations. And passages like this remind us that Israel will not be excluded from it. You know, Abraham, all the nations of the earth were blessed blessed through Abraham. And One day, those that are the physical seed of Abraham will also be blessed by that blessing. And we can look forward to that. We can rejoice in that. So God has decreed these 70 weeks, 77s in Daniel chapter 9, and one day all of this will be fulfilled. The holy city, the people, the holy people to finish their transgression, to make an end of their sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And it doesn't matter how dark the night gets, there's going to be a sunrise in the morning. And knowing that God controls the events of history is a practical benefit for your life because it gives you comfort that somebody's in charge, that my God's in charge. We sang about it, how great is my God, right? He's in charge. He's the one that's in charge of history. Every event in life is underneath his control. Daniel 9 also reminds us that God is still saving those who stubbornly reject his word and his Messiah. And just like Israel is kind of like the example, we can also look to the people that we know and love, that the Lord can do the same thing for them. He can shake them up. And there might be some family members that you have that are starting to be shaken up. You know, trials are coming into their lives, experiencing loss. The Lord uses these things to to shake people out of their uh, self-confidence. Out of the confidence that they have in themselves. It's like, no, I've got to look to the Lord. The Lord uses these events in our lives to shake us up. And how many of us have a testimony like that? That the Lord used something to shake me up to say, hey, I I, I can't do this on my own. I need the Lord. I need help. The Lord uses these things in our lives. And we can see that the prophecy of of Scripture, that's already been fulfilled in the past. We know that the Messiah has already come, exactly like Daniel said he would. And the Messiah is going to come back just as he says he would, right? Just as he said he will. He's coming back again. And uh, for those of you who do not know Jesus Christ, how long are you going to run from the Lord? 
And what does the Lord have to do in your life to finally break you free from your self-confidence until you finally turn to the Lord? The Bible says don't be like the, the horse or the mule, you know, just kind of bucking against the Lord, you know, trying to go my own way. It's like, you know, submit yourself to God. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, turn to the Lord. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is uh, full of loving kindness, and he'll have mercy on you if you would turn to him. But the Bible says that he resists the proud. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does the Lord have to do to humble you before you finally turn to him? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the Lord and allow the Lord to lift you up. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this word. And uh, Father, your, your word is always rich and uh, instructive for us. Even these prophetic passages, Lord, contain so much uh, riches for, for our lives, benefit, practical benefit for our lives. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to uh, look to your word, uh, Lord, as uh, the true guide of, of history. Uh, your word is more current than tomorrow's newspaper. Now, Father, we look to your word to, to see how, how it all ends. Uh, what the future holds, uh, because we know the one who holds the future. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, guard us against uh, uh, being resistant to you. Uh, Father, that we uh, won't need the, uh, the, the bit and bridle to hold us in check. Uh, Father, that we would look to your word and submit to it. And uh, Father, that uh, those who are here, even listening to this message, who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, I pray that you wouldn't have to bring them through great tribulation before they finally see the truth and finally look up to you, whether it is the great tribulation to come or it's personal tribulation in their lives. But Father, you, you use these things because you're a God of, of grace. And even the, the tribulation that Israel will be brought through will, will be for their, their benefit, for their eventual blessing. And you do these things because you're committed to your word. You're committed to your promises. And Father, I, I just pray that uh, that there's nobody here who has not benefited from your promises, who has not entered into that rest that we spoke of in, um, in the book of Hebrews, uh, as we read earlier today. Uh, Father, I pray that they would find their rest in Jesus Christ, find in him their righteousness, find in, in him the, the true king, uh, the one who's come as the true king, and uh, that they would receive him, uh, the one who's come in his father's name, that they would receive him and not receive those that come in their own name. Now, Father, I pray that you'd uh, uh, just uh, help us as your people to uh, proclaim this word. Your, your word deserves to be heard and proclaimed, and uh, we pray that this would give us even more motivation uh, to speak the words of truth. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.